Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. My 63rd interview is with a friend whom I've attended meetings with for more than five years, Larry L., Though Larry's story is similar in many ways to others who got sober late in life, his story is particularly poignant in that he drank his entire adult life to age 65 as a loner. Never married, Larry's daily routine for decades consisted of working long hours, then putting in a shift at the bar, literally drinking until closing time several days a week. Whatever little social life he had was confined to occasional barroom acquaintances, Drinking took its toll over the years as Larry lost jobs for poor performance that he attributes to the burgeoning alcoholism he was unaware of at the time. Seeking professional help for many years from psychotherapy, Larry's alcoholism was somehow obfuscated by other problems, such as anger and resentment, that needed to be dealt with first. Fortunately, one of his therapists helped him realize that it was alcohol ruining his life and that he should attend AA. The rest, as they say, is history, replete with the same fear, doubt, indignation, uncertainty, and apprehension that many AA newcomers face. Though he experienced somewhat of a slow start, Larry attended meetings and didn't drink in between. Eventually, he got a sponsor and worked the steps in earnest as his newfound fellowship relieved his isolation. Notably and esteemably, Larry became immersed in service work through his participation in correctional facilities committees, bringing desperately needed AA into county jails and state prisons. At 75, Larry's involvement in AA is both admirable and dependable. It models the power of AA's recovery that's available to everyone, even those who've spent most of their adult lives in the disease. Proving that it's never too late to pursue and achieve sobriety in AA, Larry's story is one everybody should hear, especially those who've waited too many years to get sober. So, for the next hour, please enjoy my intriguing discussion with my fine friend and AA brother, Larry L. My name is Larry, and I'm an alcoholic. Thanks so much for being on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast series. I'm so glad you could do this today. We're actually meeting for this interview in a room where we have a evening meeting, and that's where I first met you, although I feel like I've known you a lot longer. Well, technically, that's not accurate. Oh, okay. Uh, about 10 years ago or so, I used to go to a lot of speaker meetings, and I went to the 24-hour club, and you were one of the speakers there. Oh, yeah, that 10 o'clock meeting over there. And there's no reason why you would remember me, but I remember you. I think my story's gotten better since then, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What did you think at the time? Uh, I was really impressed. Well, uh, in those days, I don't know, I haven't gone there in a long time, but uh-huh. in those days, there was a tradition uh, that the uh, organizer uh, would only ask someone who had 15 years of sobriety. And it amazed me that you or anyone else speaking that night, uh, those nights uh, had that long in, in the program. Yeah. And that's you could find people. <laughs> well, I got to ask, the woman who asked me was really nice about it. She's a good friend at the time. She was a regular at uh, uh, the Friday night meeting that I used to go to. Uh, she just announced one night that she was looking for speakers, so anybody who had uh, 15 years, and she had, she was directing that Saturday night meeting. So yeah. I, that was one of the ways I explored more of the program was by going there. Yeah, and a lot of times sponsors like to take their new sponsees down to that place because it is it's about as raw as you can get. People are coming in off the streets do need a place to sleep, do want to get sober. Maybe they don't, but they have meetings down there. There's certain rules of the place that that kind of reflect the idea of people coming in and staying sober, at least for that day. Yeah, at that place, uh, they used to have a a little two-seater couch next to the door, and anybody who did want a bed there Hmm. had to stay in that couch for four hours. Uh, Usually it's through a presentation or meeting, something like that, but it was like a rite of passage of some kind. I think they called that the shaking sofa or the shaking couch or something like that because most of the men who who come in would be in pretty bad shape just coming in off the streets. A lot of them had been sleeping on the cement the previous night, so... They're in pretty rough shape, as you say. It's a club. They have about 10 detox beds upstairs, uh, so that was part of that 
you know, if they mm-hmm. had room for you. If they didn't have room, they'd help you find another place, oh, yeah. certainly. Uh, I have kind of a sweet story from that experience. I didn't have a sponsor for the first nine months or so, so I, I, I got there on my own. Uh-huh. One night, they, they never asked me for anything unless the regular speaker hadn't shown up. And so <laughs> one, one night, because uh, I was kind of a regular, and th- that lady came up to me and she says, how long do you have? And I, I didn't know what she meant. Uh, and <laughs> I, uh, I said, well, finally, I said, three years, uh, which was not true, actually, because it was three years that I had not drunk, but I, I had not been in the program for three years. Anyway, another time was a similar time when the regular speaker hadn't shown up and they asked me if I would sub. And that night, of all nights, they ran out of desire chips. And uh, I said, does anyone want a desire chip? And sure enough, the guy who had been sitting on that couch came up and so I didn't know what to, I gave him my own desire chip oh wow which was a powerful experience I'll bet uh, anyway some months later there was a young man there who was really well dressed and well kept and just mm-hmm. a nice good looking young man he says you don't recognize me do you I said no he said I'm the guy you gave that chip to a few weeks back and it was it just went to my heart you know what a heartwarming story yeah you and i have known each other now in the meeting that we regularly attend about a little over five and a half years maybe maybe longer than that i've never really sat down with you beyond the short shares that we've had in meetings and the the times we've talked on the phone Mm -hmm. i've always been interested in the little tidbits that you share in meetings how does a nice guy like you end up in a program like aa Wow. I did not have that so-called low bottom, mm-hmm. like the people who go to the 24-hour club. Uh, but I did have my, I drank almost my entire adult life. Hmm. Started in college. Uh, as you know, I'm Jewish, and you know, so there was occasional uh, uh, schnapps or wine at a Jewish event or something like that. But when I went to college, I used to go to the, the Jewish dinners on Friday night. And uh, it was kind of, I thought it was kind of cute, but uh, after dinner, anybody who hadn't finished their little glass of wine, I would go and finish it for them (laughs) (laughs) without asking. I was just, it was at the end of the night. By the time I took a trip to Israel on Icelandic Airlines where they served some sort of hard liquor, as just sort of a standard fare, Uh afterwards, by that time, a few years later, I went down the aisle of the plane asking anyone who hadn't finished whether they would give me theirs. Uh, and again, I didn't think that there was anything inappropriate about it. it just, Were you bombed at the time when you did that? Uh, I was by the time I finished. <laughs> <laughs> they, they give out those little teeny bottles. Yeah, 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 they're, they're just this little thing. So, and the thing is, uh, Icelandic Airlines, uh, uh, there were no student fi- flights in those days. Uh-huh. They only had one class, so everybody got treated the same. Anyway, I have these clear memories of how it began. Mm -hmm. It felt almost innocent and cute at the time. But before I knew it, of course, I was drinking regularly and getting drunk regularly and embarrassingly so. Uh, And uh, that was college days, and uh, I drank till I was about 50 or 60 years old. I stopped. Oddly enough, I stopped for about five years when my parents were old because I knew that sooner or later they were going to call me and needing a ride to the emergency room or something, mm. like just being old people and getting sick. And I didn't want that to happen, so I, uh, I stopped for five years on my own. And then as soon as my father passed away, I said, well, I guess there's no reason not to drink, and I jumped back in. Finally, I, I saw a therapist. Just to, back yeah. to your question, how did I get into AA? Um, I was seeing a therapist, uh, excellent man, and he helped me a lot. And uh, he helped me to stop drinking hmm. for about three years. And I started reading those self-help books and even, I think, the AA, you know, Daily Reflections and whatever I could to help me through this. And there was a lot, of, a lot of white knuckling at night. I would stay at the office late at night. So I was so tired that I, would just, I knew I would go straight home instead of going to the bar. Did this therapist not know about AA? This was the interesting thing. It never came up. And uh, he said that uh, because I was drinking, it was interfering with my doing the work of the therapy. And I said, okay, well, I'll stop drinking. And then... Did you read into that like I did when I got told the same thing by a therapist? And so I wouldn't drink that day, but, you know, I'd see that 
therapist maybe once every couple of weeks. So it meant I'd skip a day every couple of weeks. Yeah, no, no, uh, it was different. I mean, he didn't beat me up about it. He just said uh, uh, it's interfering with the work of the therapy. And mm. so I stopped. But after a year or so of that, no, three years, I guess, I was reading these self-help books and realizing that I was still doing, it was irritating in mm -hmm. those ways. It said, these books all said the same thing. Isn't it great that we don't do those bad things anymore? Uh, in the bad old days, we used to push away the people we loved, and uh, we lied, and we did this, and mm -hmm. we did that. Mm -hmm. And I realized one morning, I, said, I still do those things. <laughs> I haven't been drinking for three years. And so I said it to him, uh, the therapist, at the next session. And his immediate words were, dry drunk. And I didn't know what that meant. Uh -huh. He said something profound that I shall never forget. He said... Uh, it means you have stopped drinking, but you have not dealt with the things that made you start drinking in the first place. Uh -huh. And not that session, but the next session, that's when he said, I think you should go to AA. Uh, I later realized that he was quite familiar. I never had the guts to ask him if mm. he was an alcoholic himself, but he was clearly familiar with AA in uh, lots of ways. He knew a lot of the s sayings and, you know, it works if you work it and things like that. That was just this kick in the stomach. I said, wait a minute, I haven't drunk for three years and you're telling me I should go to AA? It was in October time. Uh -huh. And I remember I still didn't do it. Several months, and I emailed a lady, a friend of mine, I always give her credit, a Native American woman that I had met only on the internet. I've never met, met her in mm -hmm. person. Uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, her uh, deceased first husband had been active in AA, so she knew about it. So I said, my therapist thinks I'm an alcoholic. What do you think? And she <laughs> said, get a sponsor and do the steps. <laughs> <laughs> so she was in the program herself? No, she wasn't. Her husband was. Her husband had been well, wow. when he was alive and uh, had a lot of sponsees and stuff. So she was familiar with it from the side, mm -hmm. but she recognized the issues. And uh, that's what kicked my butt across the line. And I remember it very clearly uh, 10, almost almost 11 years ago. My, my AA birthday will be next month. For It'll be 11 years, so 11 years ago. On uh, January 2nd, I went to my first AA meeting, uh -huh. and I wouldn't admit that I was an alcoholic until a month later when I kept hearing my story coming out of other people's mouths. And I said, well, she was, if these people are alcoholic and they sound like me, I guess I must be one too. So not, not January 2nd, but February 2nd is my uh, sobriety days. But you were dry between that period of time. That's correct. Uh, it just took another month. Uh, I, I kept coming back, like they said. Uh -huh. I was going to the meetings for that month, but not admitting I was an alcoholic until a month went by. And then February 2nd, which was a month after I had started, I said, I must be one too. What a noble thing to do. I mean, to, to, <laughs> you know, I mean, to wait until you actually have the desire to stop yeah. drinking, to be able to call yourself an alcoholic using that as your sobriety date. Back to that very first meeting, afterwards, there was a man, I didn't know the terminology then, he was like, he became sort of like my uh, temporary sponsor, mm -hmm. but I didn't realize, he took me under his wing. He came up to me after the first meeting, he says, you know, it takes guts to come to an AA meeting and tell people that you're not an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody called on you or whatever, would you say your name and then say something other than I'm an alcoholic, or would you just not say anything? I don't remember specifically. I think I would just say my name. I'm Larry, and I'm here because I have a drinking problem or something like that. Yeah. I knew I had a drinking problem, as they say. That's a good start, isn't it? Yeah. So you said you didn't start drinking until you were in college. What was your family of origin like, and how would any of that have led you to delay your drinking until college? Because most people start in high school or younger. You know, I was pretty clean all the way through high school. It was interesting. My birth parents were teetotalers, hmm. didn't drink at all. Dad told me at one time that he uh, had gotten drunk with a hangover once when he was a teenager and never did it again. And my mother just never, she didn't even sip wine at Passover. Mm -hmm. However, um, my best friends, when I became a teenager uh, at the synagogue, the parents were Holocaust survivors and very, very traditional. Mm -hmm. So we would have those drinks for Friday night kiddish. I always tell people that uh, Purim is like a Jewish Mardi Gras. <laughs> uh, so there was a little bit more then, but I never got drunk drunk. Uh -huh. uh, and it was really not till I started college and even that, oddly enough, the year uh, I, I flew to Israel, 
uh, where it was just, there was no big deal about, you know, people just drank and uh, I took it to an extreme. Are there any alcoholics in your family's history? Not that I know of. I was the first. I mean, people drank, you know, at a wedding, I'd see people drinking and sure. something like that, but uh, nothing that I uh, thought was alcoholic. As a matter of fact, there was a uh, a little bar across the street from the grocery store where we lived uh, mm-hmm. on, on North Main Street, and um, Mom sort of looked down her nose. They, they were like those. That was for low lifes in the language of the those days. Same thing with tattoos and all that, all that kind of thing. When you were a kid, did, uh, do you have siblings? I have an older brother, five years older. Did he ever get involved with alcohol? No. Uh, we both did occasional drugs in college the way everybody did in mm-hmm. the 60s and 70s, but I don't think either one of us was manifested addictive of substance abuse. Mm-hmm. So I, I had no modeling for, for this at all. I started drinking, and uh, as I say, all those years, <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking about my life. I went to bars all the time. I, I never sat alone in my home and got drunk. Did you go by yourself, or did you have friends at the time, or were you a, a solitary drinker? When I first started, I would sit at a table and uh, read a book or something like that. And then one time I uh, decided to sit at the bar, and uh, in the way of bars, it became sociable. People started talking, and uh, it became my way of socializing. Huh. And I'm kind of a loner uh, anyway, and... Uh, I guess I, I came to think of going to the bars as a way of being sociable. It didn't strike me that what I was doing was unhealthy. Mm-hmm. It was just, uh, it was with people. And uh, I, I knew sometimes I didn't want to get drunk. So I might leave a little bit early or, or skip a night or something like that. But uh, I would go there and um, basically put in an evening shift at the bar. And later on, uh, I got a job in Galveston. And uh, I lost it because of the alcohol, but uh, I was putting in two shifts. I, you know, work during the day and then go to the bar right after work and stay till you know, lights out. At what point in the average evening when you're going to the bar, did you notice yourself becoming inebriated or did you not notice it? I suppose I noticed it, but I never had a point when I noticed it. Uh, what would happen is that I would get depressed. Yeah. And kind of a party and telling jokes and all that kind of a thing. And that sooner or later, I mean, I would put in, you know, four or five drinks a night. Uh, I would just get down in my dumps. And uh, I've shared at meetings recently that, uh, you know, I went to bars my entire life and uh, I have no memory of leaving a bar happy. You know, happy hour, yes. But uh, by the time I left, I'm sure there may have been times, but. I have no memory of leaving a bar happy. And you did that for how many years? My entire adult life. Wow. And was that an every evening occurrence? Not quite every evening. I would, I guess, uh, certainly several times a week. Uh huh. Sometimes every night, but uh, you know, I would guess three to five times a week easily. Were you a blackout drinker, or were you able to remember what went on the night before? Uh, I don't remember being a blackout drinker. <laughs> <laughs> After I, a term I didn't know till I got into AA, uh, but I guess looking back on it, I certainly remember there were times when I got home and didn't remember driving home. Uh-huh. But it wasn't like a, it wasn't that low bottom type experience that I wake up someplace, some part of town where I didn't know where I was or how I got there. So I never had any of those those kinds of experiences. Mm. Looking back, I remember thinking at one point that. There was nobody I knew from work that I ever saw at the bars. Hmm. And with the clarity of hindsight, it was a way of running away from whatever my day life was like. So you were a functional drunk in that, that sense of the word. Yes. I mean, I did lose jobs a couple of times. Because of being drunk? No, no, no. Uh, because I wasn't doing what the job required. But with the cl- again, with the clarity of hindsight, it related to being hung over the next morning or, well, let me phrase it a little bit differently. And this I have to thank the program for. I did not realize that all those years of drinking, I was running away from life generally Mm -hmm. and responsibility. And that included work, of course, but it also included Mm -hmm. relationships with women, getting, Mm -hmm. I never got married, no kids that I know of. And, uh, all those years, it just looked, it seemed to me the thing that I did 
And as I mentioned earlier, I stopped altogether when I thought it would interfere with being a good son to my parents. So I just never associated it with the things that being in the program I've come to associate drinking with. It took the program to open my eyes to that. Uh, one of the early things that I had to fight and be careful about uh, was not being overwhelmed by guilt uh -huh. and that sense of having wasted all those years. Hmm. They still, the feeling still comes over me a little bit. Both my parents died before I got into the program, so I never had a chance to make amends to them, except you know, mm -hmm. living amends, as we call it. But every now and then, I realize it just overwhelmingly strikes me that um, I never thanked them for all the stuff that they did for me. Mm -hmm. uh, part of being in therapy <laughs> made me realize that I had these big anger issues toward my mother, uh -huh. and I thought that I didn't have them to my father, but then with the, this last therapist that I saw who helped me stop drinking, he helped me realize that I had these anger issues toward my father as well. Yeah. And all of that was unconscious. You know, Now, whether the drinking was because of it or contributed to it or whether I was trying to hide it because of the drinking, I, I have no idea. Of course, if you were an isolator and you were drinking to get out of your isolation, yeah. it, it begs the question, what was going on in your, in your family of origin that made you become an isolator? Yes, right. exactly. Uh, and those are some of the things I dealt with in therapy. Mm -hmm. But when I was drinking, I never associated it with the drinking. I dealt with some of those issues when I was in therapy, but I didn't associate drinking as being stimulated by that, that kind of anger. My experience with therapy, too, was that as long as there were lots of other reasons why things weren't going well in my life, uh -huh. I would never have to deal with the alcoholism and drug addiction. I did not consciously go in there with that thought in mind, but I became very readily self-convinced that my problems were other things. Yes. And as long as the focus was always on family of origin issues, uh, anger issues, shame issues, whatever they would be. Yeah, let me deal with those while I continue to drink and use drugs. Yeah. It was several years into therapy before the therapist said that, you know, your drinking is interfering with the work that you have to do in therapy. Yeah. There's no doubt that he was quite familiar with AA, but it didn't come up. And he even, he didn't quite apologize for it, but he said that because I would see him when I was not drinking, you know, uh -huh. so there was, alcohol didn't interfere with uh, or didn't overlap with the drinking, although I would go to the bar after I finished therapy. So it just didn't come up. And he didn't quite apologize for it, but he, just, he hadn't been thinking how much the alcohol. Now, he really helped me uh, with AA, and we, we discussed AA a lot after mm -hmm. I started in the, in the program. I was still seeing him. Yeah, I, I owe him a lot. I, I've been thinking lately about going back to therapy, as a matter of fact, but unfortunately he's passed away, just like several of the, the grand old men of AA that helped me so much uh, yeah. that have passed away you know, 10 years later as well. Like my sponsor is gone now. I knew Ed and I'd see him in meetings. So would you attribute your sobriety and your getting sober to begin with, the turning point that led you into the program was this particular therapist? Yes, no doubt about it. Wow. No doubt about it. So you hit a different kind of bottom. I suppose that's a, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. Uh, it's interesting, saying it that way, um, I remember when I came into the program, it's one of the reasons I'm thinking about going back to therapy. I, I, I think I was certainly clinically depressed and I was on antidepressants. Mm -hmm. I stopped taking them at mm -hmm. some point. That's one of the reasons I'm thinking about going back into therapy because mm -hmm. uh, some of those depression feelings have come up again. But there was a darkness in my life mm. at that time. And uh, I don't think I've ever shared that in a meeting, but I remember what happened over that first year of coming to AA, I observed to my therapist once that, that there was something very therapeutic about <laughs> AA. And he responded uh, correctly, I think. AA is definitely therapeutic, but it's not therapy. They're two different things. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, and one needs to separate between them. I remember a, a couple of months going to the Tuesday, Thursday meetings, uh, and I went and uh, uh, I remember the first night I went there was birthday. It must have been the end of February. Mm -hmm. It was birthday night, and they don't give chips. They give birthday cards. And they all went up, and the people applauded and everything. And I, I thought, remember thinking, I said, man, the last thing I want in my life 
is to stand up in front of a bunch of drunks with a birthday card. <laughs> and by a year later, I was speeding, breaking the speed laws to get there. But what happened, I remember very clearly, because I thought about it a lot. When I first came into the program, everything was dark, and I looked forward, I looked forward to nothing. And by some time during that first year, I started looking forward to going to meetings hmm. to the point that, as I say, I was speeding to get my that first birthday night. Yeah. What were your initial meetings like when you first came in? Did you feel at home, comfortable, uncomfortable? What was what was the overriding feeling? I didn't feel uncomfortable, but it was also new that some of it was kind uh -huh. of boring. The meeting that I started with was a step study, and uh, they they started with the uh, the twelve and twelve. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know there was a big book. <laughs> it came up, and I didn't know what the heck they were talking about. But, you know, in the way of meetings, so after a while, certain people were saying the same thing at every meeting, and it was kind of boring. I'd kind of, okay, let's get on with it kind of thing. And it's then when I started going to a regular meeting, mm -hmm. the, the Tuesday, Thursday meetings, and then eventually my sponsor, Ed, uh, he went to a different meeting for Friday night. Uh, men's meeting, so I, I went with him to that mm -hmm. and stopped going to that other Friday meeting. Most of the meetings I go to are men's meetings, yeah. and uh, I'm sure something similar must go on with the women's meetings, but there was, there was a kind of depth or sharing from the heart when there weren't women in the room trying to impress kind of thing. Fewer distractions. Even. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, as a matter of fact, that, that Friday, the first Friday night meetings I was going to, a good number of very good-looking women, I found I didn't have a sponsor, but I didn't need anybody to tell me, <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't think about starting relationships in the first year kind of thing, because I, I felt it was really hard to think about the program at those meetings with these good-looking ladies in, in the meetings. I'm the same way. I've gone to men's meetings for years, and I go to mixed meetings too, yeah. but predominantly men's meetings. It's a different kind of energy. Being around a group of men where men are getting vulnerable and are really yes. opening up is an extraordinary experience and something that I think anybody who's never been to a gender-specific meeting, and yeah. I don't want to get political with, with other LGBTQ, et cetera, sure. but there's just something about a men's meeting when you're sitting there, the energy in the room is, is powerful, yeah. at least it was for me. So were you riding over to meetings with your sponsor? No, no, we'd go separately. Every now and then, unfortunately, he, he got ill. He passed away at, at some point. Uh, occasionally, if he was ill and couldn't drive, I would give him a ride. Okay. But generally, we would just go separately. You know, I, I would go after work, you know, just like I normally do. Now, a lot of men go out to eat or they go out to get, grab coffee after the meetings. Were you partaking of any of that? Uh, I didn't do it at the other the earlier meetings. It seemed a little bit forced. Uh, everybody was talking about fellowship, you know, with a big F, that kind of thing. Uh -huh. A number of the guys from the Friday night meeting, uh, which became my home group, mm -hmm. uh, did go, uh, and they still go to one of the restaurants between here and there. And I would join them there, and a couple, of, my sponsor and a couple of other guys. Gradually, uh, the older guys stopped going, and I'm at an age now. I'm in, I'm 75. Uh -huh. In fact, there's just not very much in common. I don't have anything <laughs> in common with the younger guys. The the conversation would become a little not unpleasant, but forced. You know, the, the way you are at a party when you don't know anybody, kind of thing. Sure. And and it's it's, it's the way of those things. I, it's one of the issues I'm having now, one of the reasons I'm thinking, I guess I shared this more than another meeting, one of the reasons I'm thinking about going back into therapy and feeling depressed is that I'm at an age where I probably should have retired some years ago. Uh -huh. And at work, uh, they like me, but I, I don't feel like I'm really contributing. I'm kind of a, well, I'm like the grandfather, you know, it's like, you let him watch the kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and everything I do, if I left tomorrow, my, my sense they all like me, I think, but my sense is that nobody would miss me at all. Uh -huh. You know, so I really need to be thinking about what happens next in my life, what I need to be putting attention to. Yeah. Happily, there's no doubt that AA is part of my life now. Oh well, yeah. I've shared at meetings. I I cannot remember when it happened or why it happened, but it was one of those gradual changes that happens over time. Mm -hmm that it did dawn on me, finally got through that, as you hear people say, no matter how good or bad the day has been, 
for me, a drink will make it worse. Mm. I just know it happened just uh, by accident uh, over the holidays just now. This is uh, you know the end of January, mm-hmm. middle of January, and uh, Christmas time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I stopped eating a lot of sugary things also, just a little, being a little more healthy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the manager, the head administrator, brought me a cook a Christmas cookie that was shaped like a Jewish star. So he thought it was cute. You know, <laughs> yeah. And I took it, normally would not have taken it uh, right. just because of the sugar. But uh, so I took it and thanked him, of course, and I ate it. And then the sugar kicked in. And I thought to myself, you know, if there was a whole package of cookies here, I would finish the whole package. And I just, it, it, I, I sort of shook myself. I said, that's the addiction. That's the addict in me. Sugar is a big addiction. Yeah. And that's when, when I stopped drinking. Before I got into the program, when I stopped drinking, I gained 30 pounds or so because I substituted ice cream. Instead of going to the bars, I'd go have a pint of ice cream. I'd get two or three pints, one for appetizer, one for main course, one for dessert. Yeah. (laughs) And for some reason, I gained weight. I couldn't understand why. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. So the meetings that you chose early on were men's meetings. At what point did you get a sponsor? I would say about nine months in. Yeah. Why, why did you wait so long? Uh, well, I'm a loner number one. Uh-huh. And uh, one of the things I found off-putting, <laughs> there were a number of younger guys who, when they heard I was new to the program, I'm sure it was one of those things they picked up early on in the program or when they were in detox mm-hmm. or in rehab, that the thing that helps you most is to help another drunk. Right. And they would offer, they say, oh, would you like me to be your sponsor? <laughs> and I'd say, no. <laughs> uh, but finally, I heard Ed share one night, and it sounded like me. I said, that's the man I would like to be my sponsor. Hearing him share from his bad old days, I said, yeah, that sounds like me. Hmm. And I went up to him after the meeting, and I said, "Uh, I'd like you to be my sponsor. And it was great. He said, let's talk. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't say no. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Then we met for coffee someplace else another night, you know, and he heard my story and why I wanted him to be my sponsor and everything. And he he agreed, happily he agreed. Yeah. And it was just the the right combination. He's, uh, well, you knew him. He was one of those quiet guys. I've heard whether it's a God thing or not, I don't know. But, you know, you hear people say, yeah, my sponsor was like a Marine drill sergeant, and he was exactly what I needed, you know, kind of thing. Uh-huh. I think if I had had that kind of person, I, I would have run away and never come back. The first, that first night, uh, at, <laughs> I'm laughing because I mean, it's funny now. I used to have a friend at work who said the difference between tragedy and comedy is time. Time. <laughs> you know? And I remember when I decided that I would go to AA, I called up Intergroup. And I, I didn't know the terminology. I said, uh-huh. what's a closed meeting? What's an open meeting? So oh, a closed meeting says, that's for people who have a real drinking problem. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, that's not me, of course. Uh-huh. Uh, and then uh, the, the, the step study, I said, well, I'm an academic. I, uh, this is a study that you read the book that makes sense to me. You hear a lot of times at meetings when someone says it's their very first meeting, it's like they turn the lights off and a spotlight goes on them and everybody's just talking to them, them, them all night long. <laughs> and it was not like that at all. Uh, they went around and came to me and said, um, well, I know I've got a drinking problem. I'm not sure I'm an alcoholic. And they, they said, okay, next. And nobody beat me up about it. It was just, I remember I did not have words for it that night as I was leaving that very first meeting, four men gave me their names and numbers. So they just came up and said, here's my number, call if you want to talk. Hmm. Uh, and I remember as I was standing there by the door thinking, I've never had the experience any place on this planet where people were just accepting me for who I am 
and not trying to force something down my throat. I walked back out to the parking lot. Yeah, that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful way to frame that too, because for as isolated as you were, for people to reach out like that. Yes. And of course, in hindsight, you could see why people do that is to undergird their own sobriety and strengthen their own program. But somewhere along the way, the impact that that can have on the new guy can sometimes be profound. Yes. So you waited nine months before you asked Ed to be your sponsor. During that nine-month period, were you attempting to work the steps by yourself, or were you just going to meetings? No, I was, I was really just going to meetings and different kinds of meetings. I was going to four or five meetings a week. And were you enjoying them? Uh, yeah, because I was learning a lot. Uh, the speaker meetings were really, mm-hmm. really important, and I was just... I was trying to do as much as I could, and I kept hearing people say, you know, get a sponsor and do the steps, and I was amazed at the things they shared Mm. in the context of getting a sponsor and doing the steps. As I said, a number of people, I wouldn't say they pushed themselves on me, but they they offered to be my sponsor, and it was the, the isolator in me, almost the fact that they were offering to be my sponsor made me not want to have them as my sponsor. Yeah, I get that. Uh, Groucho Marx supposedly said that any he would not be a member of any club that would have him as a member. Right, right. So, yeah. so the fact that these guys were coming up to me and offering made me, not, especially younger, people younger than me, you know, one meeting I would go to, and I remember complaining as I was going out. It, it did amaze me that some of these young guys who'd been in the program for years longer than me already, they'd been in and out of rehab several times, and these words of wisdom from the program were coming out of them. Yeah. And I thought, I would think to myself, I drank longer than these guys have been alive. <laughs> How is it that they're so smart and wise? And this one guy said, that, that sounds like a, uh, a resentment. You should add this to your fourth step. <laughs> <laughs> You're attempting to do one? Well, by that time, by the time that came up, I think I must have had a, had a sponsor. I have to say, I, I found meetings. There were a couple of meetings in the way of those things that I went once and said, this is not for me. Yeah. But I found meetings that were really so powerful. Yeah. They just grabbed me by the throat. Like, like the speaker meetings at the, at the 24-hour club, I went there for Thanksgiving, my first Thanksgiving in the program, standing room only. And I realized that everybody in this house, that house had saved their lives. And it was just these powerful experiences. Up on Sunday nights, because I was just looking for a Sunday night meeting, I went every Sunday night, and eventually, because I was a regular, they asked me to, to run the coffee bar for oh, them. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so it just, you know, in, in these way of small increments. You kind of fell into service work, didn't you? Exactly. So you were able to, without having a sponsor, without really doing much with the steps, stay sober and stay engaged in AA through the number of meetings you were going to. Yes. So... The predominant things you were doing was you were going to meetings and you weren't drinking. And then at some point along the way, you got a sponsor and started to do the other things. Yes. And my therapist was helpful. Uh, he said, so how's it going? I said, it's a pain in the butt. He said, what do you mean? I said, these goddamn steps. I'm just trying to get through this. <laughs> he says, well, what's so hard? And I said, look, I'm just trying to. And I, I almost cannot believe these words came out of my mouth. Uh-huh. I said, I'm not worried about drinking anymore. I just want to get through the goddamn steps. <laughs> <laughs> so I must have had a sponsor by that point. It, it's funny because I, I often do this Freudian slip where I refer to my therapist as my sponsor and my sponsor right. as my therapist. <laughs> but uh, he smiled and he said, well, you know, it's, it's a way of living. It's a program for living. It's not just doing the steps. I said, I, that's what I said this thing, that I'm not worried about drinking. That was a Tuesday, and I remember clearly that Saturday night, the same week, mm-hmm. I went to the speaker meeting over at the 24-hour club, and the day manager was there drunk on the par- on the porch. Oh, no. And I thought to myself, that's step one right in front of me. Mm. And I, I learned that night that step one never goes away. Mm-hmm. We get caught up in all the other things in life and the program. Well, we, get, we acknowledge that we admit it. We admit that we're powerless and we admit that our lives are unmanageable, but somewhere along the way we stop accepting it. Yeah. I, I get that. That's yeah. that's big. 
So as you made your way into the years in the program, I know one of the things that you do, you've become involved for a number of years now with the corrections, yeah. uh, which is a fantastic service. Yeah, it's powerful. That goes beyond what a lot of people are willing to do. Can you speak to that and, and how you got involved? It's powerful. Things have changed with COVID, so I, I, my own head is, needs to get back involved with it. Yeah. I, I'm still involved with committees and stuff like that, but I'm, just, I'm not going inside anymore to take meetings. One of the things from my home group is that I became the GSR. Uh-huh. Here we go, laughing. I said, well, I knew they had an extra meeting a month or something like that. So I figured, well, I, you know, I go to boring meetings at work all the time. I could go to a boring <laughs> meeting. And, and no one told me about these two-day up at the hotel by the airport uh-huh. every yeah. three months yeah. kind of thing. So uh, as usual, I joke that all of AA is like a big bait and switch to scam yes. to me because it's like you get in thinking you just want to stop drinking and they, nobody tells you oh you have to start treating other people like human beings and you have to be honorable you have to stop lying anyways so I went to the quarterly uh, area assembly just about the most boring meetings I've ever been to in my life mm-hmm. anyways but then something happened it was just in the way these things whether it's a God thing or, or what I don't know mm-hmm. A woman got up, and she was going on and on and on and on. And everybody, mm-hmm. I was rolling my eyes. I think everybody was. Oh, yeah. Finally, one of the big dogs gets down from the stage and goes to the microphone and says, this is the way it is. End of story. About five minutes later, this first lady got back up to the microphone. And I'm not sure that I heard a groan in the entire, it's like yeah. 300 people. That, yeah. Or whether I just groaned, I don't know. But she got up, and she said, I was wrong, and sat down. Huh. And I thought to myself, I was in shock. I thought to myself, that's step 10 right in front of me. Just like that first, that drunk. Yeah. Uh, to me, it was step uh-huh. one. Step one. This is step 10 right in front. And oh. I, I, I thanked the lady as I, on my way out. I said, you know, that took guts to get up and do that. Anyways, uh, you go around at the at the tables there uh, and, uh, you know, you pick up cards and, and, and stuff like that. I don't know if I left my card or I just picked up cards. I started getting emails out of the blue for the Correctional, corrections, correctional Facilities Committee. I have no idea why or how. Maybe I signed some. I, I, I don't know. So finally I emailed back and I said, look, uh, I don't know how you got my email address, but no, I'm not interested. <laughs> Thank you, but I'm not interested. I kept getting the emails. He just didn't stop. I know the man. Yeah, yeah. I just spoke with him this morning. He's right. real active with the community. But uh, anyway, he just didn't he just kept, so finally, I said, okay, well, uh, let me go. You know, I'm, I'm trying to find out yeah. what, how the program's all about, so let me go and see what's going on. Turns out that that meeting was not even a regular correctional facilities committee. It was for their annual conference planning meeting. Oh, wow. So before I knew it, <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was into it. You were in the deep end. In all the that. deep end, that's right. And uh, I went to the annual conference. And uh, it was there that I just, uh, it was just great. I just learned, I had no idea. Yeah. You know, I mean, another thing that had happened around the same time when I had my first AA birthday, Mm -hmm. it dawned on me that there was a prison inside my head. Hmm. And I was stuck in that prison. And so there was something that the idea of taking meetings into prisons for inmates resonated somehow. At that time, <laughs> it gets even weirder, there are actually two correctional facilities committees. Mm-hmm. One of them is related to the area, mm-hmm. and the other was actually at that time uh, related to intergroup. Mm-hmm. So several of the people I knew were in both committees, so I joined both committees. <laughs> <laughs> I said, th- I I thought, well, this is just the thing that AA people do, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you were sober how long by this point? I guess about a year and a half. I guess I it, somehow I understood without anyone telling me that the more I did, the better. And uh, and, and Frank, back to being an isolator, I wasn't doing anything else with my life. Uh, it wasn't like I was sociable in the synagogue or in some social group or anything like that. And I wasn't married and didn't have kids and yeah. all that kind of thing. And I've seen the men in the meetings say that, you know, since they they started as young young men and now they're married and kids and they just can't get to meetings as frequently. Uh-huh. So I, I understood that. Um, so I joined the committees, and uh, I, but it took me a year or more. I I was frankly just afraid to get to go inside. Mm. 
And um, also, God bless the men involved. They're driving to these prisons. Some of them are driving two and three hours to get to the prison. Yeah, like to Huntsville. Yeah. And they get there, and it's locked down for some reason. They can't get in. Chuck, he, he has shared that he, he went to a, a, a meeting. He called to make sure that they were not locked down. Right. And they said they were open. And he went, and they were locked down in the two hours that it took him to get there. Jeez. And then they drive back. So this is like all day events. God bless yeah, the men yeah. and, and women who are doing these yeah, things. Yeah. So I found out that uh, there were meetings at Harris County Jail, which is just downtown. Mm-hmm. And I went with uh, one of the guys. Uh, uh, he was the chair of the committee at the time. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll get my feet wet. It's close. I can go there right after work. I don't have to drive three and four hours. Uh-huh. So I went with him um, in downtown. And... That first time they closed the door behind you, they locked the door behind you before they opened the door in front of you, Mm. I realized, you know, if they didn't want me to go home, I wouldn't be able to go home tonight. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'd never been arrested. All those years of driving under the influence, all those years of my life, my adult life, drinking and driving, I was never arrested. Huh. And one of the guys in the committee always says, yeah, but you should have been. <laughs> you yeah. know, that's for sure. And one of the things they say in the correctional facilities committees is those people are doing our time. Yeah, they're doing our time. Yeah. Anyways, I go in. And, of course, also in the way of those these, uh, this is Larry. This is his first time here. He's going to lead the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Just a classic. So I um, and are these all trustees? That no, no, no. These are these are just men on the floor. The general population. Yeah. yeah. Now, I've I later learned at least on the floor that we went. Mm-hmm. These were not the worst of the worst. They didn't cause trouble. They could. They were allowed them out of their cell areas to go to the chapel room on their own. They sure. weren't as, escorted by a guard or anything. Uh, so uh, on other floors, and that's the other thing. There aren't enough volunteers, so we did, we only had a meeting on our floor in, in that jail. So if you were not on our floor, you never got a meeting. Hmm. Uh, and every now and then we'd, uh, we'd get, they call them I-60 form, which is, uh, oh, is there a meeting? Can someone get me a big book you know, for people? Because a lot of them, <laughs> I shared with one of the guys who planted the seed for going in. Uh, I said, you know, I've never been arrested. And he said, they know how to be arrested. He said, they don't know how to stay sober. And and I've been told that 80% of the crimes that get people into jail are related to alcohol or drugs. Yeah. One way or the other. Either while they're under the influence or stealing to get money to get under the influence or something like that. So anyway, the, the, the man, I, I, I wanted to be honest with them. So I said, look, first time I've ever been in jail, never been arrested. I'm frankly kind of uptight. Yeah said I. And one of the men said, you're not afraid of us. You're afraid of being locked up. Huh. And I have to admit, you know, that I, I hesitate to say it, but the meeting at the jail was at six o'clock, which gave me time to get to my eight o'clock meeting here at the church, uh-huh. which is, it worked out fine. Sometimes the sharing in that jail meeting was so solid that I almost didn't feel like going to my regular meeting. Huh. And and the thing is, the regular meeting is solid. I mean, that mm-hmm. they really helped me a lot Oh yeah. in, in, in my program. But, you know, you, you hear stuff, like you say, from the heart. And, you know, I mean, some of the guys are, are just there, and you have your hassles. They just want to get out of their cell. Sure. Or you never know. But I thought to myself, you know, you don't know how sincere people are in regular meetings either. That's a good point. So um, I remember clearly, uh, you know, sometimes these things just jump out at you. This man, he only came to two sessions. He said that he had been in and out of prison for 30 years of his life. Huh. And within six months of his most recent release, he was back in Harris County Jail. Mm. But, and this happened with some of them, he was, had been in the program for 35 years. He knew AA better than I did. He knew the big book. He knew all this stuff. So was he that sober horse thief everybody's talking about? Well, it's hard to say. <laughs> it's hard to say. I, I, I don't know, but you know, he, he made this. Then at the second, the next session, he said, you know, I've been going to meetings all my life, 
but coming to this meeting, meaning our jail meeting, made me realize that I wasn't really doing the program. Yeah. I was going to meetings, but I wasn't doing the program. And he was later, he wasn't released, released, but the, the, he was transferred to like a, a drug abuse program, which is inside the system. Uh -huh. And every now and then, something like that would be shared at a meet, at one of the jail meetings. There's a guy who's real active in, in, in the committee. Uh -huh. uh, and he's, when he was in prison, yeah. He said he only went to AA because they were they had air conditioning. Yeah, they didn't want, you know, yeah. the prison. Yeah. He said that's the only reason he started going there. Yeah. Not, you know, it clicked, you know, yeah. in the way it does. And uh, I remember one guy, he said, you know, before coming here regularly, uh, I think I may be an addict. He, he thought he was in jail because he'd beat up his wife. But listening to the shares, you know, and uh, another sweet story like that guy uh, from the 24-Hour Club, uh, at my home group meeting, Friday night meeting with my sponsor, I get a, a young fellow, really well-groomed, good-looking young man, uh -huh. came up to me and says, you don't recognize me, do you? <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> he said, you gave me my sobriety chip in Harris County Jail. He had stayed sober since that time? Apparently. How many years was that? Oh, oh th this was... I didn't go into detail with him. I'm sure it was within a year, you know. But still, just the fact that he was coming to a meeting afterwards. So you, you really made an impact on people's lives along the way, haven't you? I don't know about that. <laughs> well, no, I'll say it for you because I've, I've noticed that you do it, and you're always making announcements about the Correctional Facilities Committee mm. and about people going into the prisons. And, you know, you're great with the public service announcements about that, and I know that there are guys and gals who have gotten involved with the, the prisons because of your messages and because of you telling them about the, about the committee. Uh, the thing you said about the prison in your mind, mm. that's remarkable. I mean, that's kind of self-realization. Mm. And to connect that with the experience of being of service to men behind bars is exceptional. And I, I, oh. I, I really honor you for that. That's a beautiful thing. And it sounds like another God deal. <laughs> Which brings up the topic of God mm. and what you thought when you came into AA, seeing God in the steps, how has your relationship grown or changed or been a different experience than you might have thought it would be when you, when you came into AA? I'll tell you the truth. Uh, I did and I still have problems with that area. Mm -hmm. I think when I used to be very religious, mm -hmm. uh, I used to be a professional Jew, uh, and I grew up with people who, like you say, Holocaust survivors and people who were really solid in their re religion. I, I, I don't mean just ritually observant, but just real solid. Right. I don't know whether it's because I'm in academics or too much in my head, but I've, I have come over the years to have more and more problems with that. Uh, what do you hear at meetings often is that... Uh, People who are too smart for the program. Yeah, I think it, that may be, but there's enough of me that's still there, or enough of there that's still in me. That um, the very first night I came, the very first meeting I went to here, there was something going on at the church, and uh, the parking lot was full. And I said, "Ah, that's God's way of telling me that I shouldn't go to AA." <laughs> Can't find a parking Can't spot. Can't find a parking spot. <laughs> <laughs> that thought actually crossed my mind. And just then, somebody pulled out. Oh, God. <laughs> and said, damn, you know, I don't have that excuse anymore. Uh, I remember coming, driving home from the 24-hour club one night, mm -hmm. and I remember feeling angry, and I didn't understand why. Why am I feeling so angry? And it finally dawned on me that AA has taken away all my excuses. Hmm. So when I come to meetings, and especially, you know, some meetings are boring, some shares, you know, it's not, they're not all great. But when these, when these nuggets are presented by just regular people, you know, we're not yeah. talking about great theologians here. And I can't help. And other, you know, other people say it too. You can't help but feeling that these are words of God coming through other people's mouths. Yeah. What a, what a what a beautiful what a beautiful realization. Yeah.
And, and uh, you know, I, it dawned on me, as, as much as I have problems with this stuff, the God stuff. Yeah. And this has been from the beginning. Cause I, yeah. I remember when, when Ed took me to, when we did the third step prayer, I kind of stumbled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I, I remember thinking to myself, well, I'm going to say it, but I'm not really sure I believe it yeah. kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And I felt like I was maybe not being completely honest with him. Yeah. I finally, uh, okay, let's just get on with it because there's, you know, there's, there's eight more steps. <laughs> well, and also there's this sense of disloyalty to your own religion, yes. especially when yes. especially when on the third step the guy says, now let's kneel down together and hold hands. Yeah. And saying, well, you know, am I being disloyal to my heritage? Yeah. And, and at some point I had to say, maybe, maybe not, but I got to do this anyway. Yeah. I got to do this I, anyway. Actually, it's interesting. You say on Christmas Day, uh, just now, uh, there's a fellow in my home group. Uh, he's he's real religious, uh, real solid yeah. in the program. And uh, he said, this sounds odd, but I, I'm remembering that Jesus was Jewish. And so I feel like I should send you greetings anyway. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's great. I texted back to him. Not to worry, one of the things that the program has taught me is to look for the similarities rather than the differences. Yeah. And so that's really what it is. And I've shared at meetings, I don't see the wind, but I see the effect of the wind when the trees blow. You know, so, uh -huh. so I guess maybe all of this comes into some bucket of agnosticism as opposed to atheism. I just... Whenever I'm around people who are believers, I find myself not believing. When I'm around non-believers, I find myself believing, you know, and it's just kind of that not quite sure where I am in all this. Well, at least you're open to the idea, and I've heard you express a lot of that kind of sentiment over the years that yeah. I've known you, and of course, I've, I've over the years struggled with some of that as mm -hmm. well, And but you know what? I think it's okay because we're staying sober. We're being of service to others. Yeah. You, my friend, are just a, a really shining example of service work and a man who's committed to working a good program. Uh, I've really enjoyed getting to know you over all these years. And the fact that you shared such personal parts of your life with mm -hmm. me in this interview means that our friendship is probably even stronger than I thought it was. Uh -huh. So that's a beautiful well, that's thing good. as well. And my feeling... In, in kind of wrapping up is to say, as long as you're with us, as long as you're here, isolation will always be just a choice. <laughs> well said. So I want to say thanks for doing this, Larry. It's my pleasure. Uh, I, can, I can say, and I really mean this, AA has given me a heck of a lot more than I've given it. That's for sure. I remember I was, I was one of those jail stories I was sharing it with, you know, Wiley, who passed away, uh -huh. uh, who is also just incredibly solid in the program. And I, I was a little bit puffed up. I, I wanted yeah, to get yeah. some strokes, say, oh, this is wonderful thing happened. He says, yes, and you're doing exactly what the program wants you to do. <laughs> <laughs> and he grounded, he says, it's not me. Oh, yeah. It's not Larry doing these things. It's the program do, doing these things. Yeah, and it's it's God doing for us what we cannot sometimes do yes. for ourselves yes. through us. I just think it's a lovely way to go through life, being able to keep that in mind. And I don't always. I know, I know most people don't, but when they do, then we can have exchanges like this and, yeah. and, and can be meaningful friends. I love you, and I'm so happy to have you in my life, and you've made a big difference to me. It's funny how people kind of come in and go out of your life, but over the years I've been in AA, there's so many people that have come in but not gone out. <laughs> you know, they may, get, they may get out, you know, natural causes, but, yeah. uh, or because they go out and drink, but the vast majority of them, I have to believe that us being close to each other is the reason why we stay sober, and that's why we stay close yeah. to each other. So it's a, it's a, it's a circuitous sort yeah. of thing. That's I, I think I was kind of alluding to it earlier when I said that I'm going through some rough times now personally, uh, and, but there's one thing that I do know is that whatever comes next, drinking is not going to be part of it. Yeah. And I can thank that's, the program for that. And I'll yeah. be the therapist who got me into the program. And yeah. you. And you. <laughs> And you. Larry, thanks again. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to do this. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Larry L., for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by sharing it with your fellow AAs, both before and after meetings? 
As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more alcoholics worldwide. Of course, you can listen to all of the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>